0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 39. Well, we have another first for the podcast in this episode. This conversation with Pat Farmer was the very first time we've taken the Team Guru podcast on the road and recorded in front of a live audience. It was a heap of fun, and I have to thank Matthew Walkham for the opportunity. As well as being a long-time listener to the podcast, Matt is a second-generation leader in Techniclean Australia, a company that his father and uncle started more than 20 years ago. Techniclean were impressed by Pat Farmer's story and made a donation to his most recent run, The Spirit of India. And in return, Pat donated some of his time to talk to their business. Now, Matt is a pretty impressive character and he thought big. Rather than simply have Pat come and talk to him and his employees, he thought he'd make an event of it. He enrolled the support of his local physio practice, Bounce Rehab in Piermont, and he invited me along to host and record the conversation so we could turn it into an episode of the podcast. Well, we've been able to go one better than that. When we recorded this episode in late July, Pat Farmer was so generous with his time that this will be a two-part episode. Pat Farmer probably doesn't need much of an introduction to most listeners. Ultra marathon extraordinaire. Pat is known for the epic runs he creates and completes solo. Early this year, he ran the length of India from south to north. That's 4,416 kilometres over 64 days. In the past, he's run from Lebanon to Jordan, from the top to the bottom of Vietnam He's run an entire lap around Australia and a whole bunch of other crazy adventures. But of course, his most famous run is the pole to pole from the North Pole to the South Pole. Yep, you heard right. Pat Farmer ran from the very top of the world to the very bottom. Over 20,000 kilometres across 14 countries, more than 20 million steps. He ran an average of 65 kilometres a day for 10 months and 13 days. His achievements are beyond incredible. They're quite simply impossible for most of us to get our head around. And did I mention, somewhere within that incredible running career, Pat found time to spend nine years in Canberra as a Federal Member of Parliament. He really is an extraordinary person. In the conversation you're about to hear, Pat is incredibly honest. There are times where I was actually quite shocked about how honest he was about his running, the things that happened, his time in Parliament and the things he learned about the way politics really works. He even makes an announcement during this podcast about his next run. So I'll take you now to Bounce Rehab in Piedmont for my conversation with Pat Farmer. I started by asking him about his path to running.
0: Distances or, uh, um, or to be you know, to be able to run in general in those days. And I was often the guy that cut up the oranges and took them on to the other kids at halftime. Uh, I never got to run on the team, never got to run at uh, cricket or whatever. I was all right with the backyard cricket, but that was about it. And so I was looking for something in my life where i could be somebody or be something or and achieve something and i think that's the same with all of us you know we're all trying to find our niche in life whether it's when you're 14 16 18 whether you're 30 40 50 or even 60 or, or beyond you know we're all the time looking for trying and find what the heck we're doing on this earth and what's our what's what's the meaning of our own personal life and so uh, i was fortunate enough um I I left school when I was 14 years old. I got an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic at a garage very close to school, and I was called out from um, underneath the car one day by my boss, Laurie Archer, uh, who worked at Cumberland Cabs. He used to be uh, called Cumberland Cabs now. It's Premier Taxis. Uh, And he said to me, Pat, come out here and have a look at this. I stood on Woodville Road at Granville and I saw all these great elite runners racing on down the road, and these were the runners in the first Sydney to Melbourne ultra-marathon. And uh, many of you probably wouldn't know about that event, but it was a big event many, many years ago in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And it was a big event because it was the first time they actually put prize money into a running event. And there was like, and serious prize money for those days, it was $50,000. I think the prize money ended up going up to $60,000, which was a huge amount of money in those days. Uh, And um, Cliff Young, of course, won that race, but I will never forget he won the first one. And I'll never forget, this guy at the age of 63, I, I, I saw him run past where I worked and then I went home that night and I watched the news and I couldn't believe these guys were still running. They're still going. Then the next day I was on my way to work, I listening to the radio and they're still running. And then the next day and the next day and I thought, how on earth can a human being do that? You know, this is, and it, I was intrigued. And then at the end of it all, when this guy who was 63, who had taken on the best in the world, or the best certainly that Australia had to offer uh, as far as runners were concerned, the guy that was 63, the most unlikely person in the world, actually won the race. That was when I knew that I had a chance to be able to do something because often, you know, we get all these elite athletes and we put them up here on a pedestal and we feel so removed from them that we don't even try and be like them. Uh, and we often don't get the chance to get to know their background and their real story. And when you do, then you start to understand they're just ordinary people like like I am, and they did it like this. So if they can do it, I can do it. And with Cliff Young, most importantly, you know, 63 years old, he ran a 1,000 kilometres in what was considered then as the toughest foot race on earth. He took on 30 other runners, and he beat them all because of his tenacity, his ability never to give up, and, of course, um... uh, his stamina, you get more stamina as you get older, you lose your base speed but you pick up stamina and this is why uh, many people over the age of 30 are much better at the longer distance events, the triathlons, the long swims, the long cycling, the, the long running uh, because you've got more stamina and of course you've got this edge as far as knowledge is concerned and knowing what you're capable of doing and you put park that in the back of your head and each time you come up against a barrier you remind yourself that you've been there before and you can overcome it because you have overcome it. And so that's what gets you through. Whereas when you're younger, you come up against the same barriers, you just go, I'm going to give this away and I'll have another crack at it another day. So you were inspired by Cliff Young shuffling past.
1: I, I was surprised to learn that you were a motor mechanic starting in 1977. What was your relationship with running, though, when you first saw that race and <laughs> realized that there was these ultra marathons where you wake up the next morning and these people are still running? Where were you as a runner?
0: Well, I was amazed, but I knew nothing. And I mean, absolutely nothing. Let me tell you about the first run I ever did, because I was, I, I was caught up with this. And then I wanted to do uh, the Sydney to Melbourne race. So I rang up the Westfield people because they were the sponsors of it at the time. I said, I want to be a part of this event, blah, blah, blah. Now I remember the girl on the phone saying to me, oh, yeah, sure, no problems. Um, um, so how many marathons have you run? And I said, uh, um, oh, I haven't run any marathons, uh, ultra marathons. Oh, um, I haven't run any ultra marathons. She said, uh, fun runs. And I said, well, not yet. And, <laughs> and she hung up the phone. I called her back another time, and uh, eventually I, I, I got the information out of her about a qualifying event. And there was all these qualifiers, like you could run from Parramatta to Bathurst up over the Blue Mountains up over up, up, up Mount Victoria and out to there, and you had to do that in 30 hours. That was a qualifier, and it was a race within the race. Uh, uh, then um, there was another qualifier from Melbourne to Colac down by the Great Ocean Road. It was 210 uh, k's, and you had 48 hours to do that in. Uh, and back in those days, it was, that was tough going. And, uh, then, and then they had one up here in Sydney, and it was like around a 400-metre track at Henley Oval out of Botany. And I thought, oh, it's just a running track, 400-metre track around there. And they said, yeah, you need to clock up 160 k's in 24 hours. I go, well, that doesn't sound too hard. I'd never run before. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I, I got into this race, and I convinced my family to come along and crew for me and to be part of this whole thing. And I said, I want you to crew for me. And they said, yeah, but do you do you even know how to run? And I said, yeah, it's easy. Just put one foot in front of the other. can't be too hard. That old guy did it, so surely I can do it. So so I convinced them to come along and crew for me. And uh, so we, we got out there. The gun went off, and there's 30 hopefuls trying to make it for the Sydney to Melbourne race to qualify for it and the gun went off, and I'm running around, and everybody's, like, pace. I found out later on it was, they were pacing. but <laughs> so I'm thinking, they're running slow. <laughs> they're running pretty slow, you know. So, so I got a bit fed up with this, being a young fool at the time, and I, so I went past them, and I lapped them, and I lapped them, and I lapped them, and I lapped them, and then I saw my name up on the leaderboard, and I thought, this is great. You know, this is what I was destined for all my life. I'm good at this stuff, and I didn't even know it. And uh, I'm looking at my name up there and the more I saw my name each time I come around at the end of 400 metres, I felt even better and I'd run faster again. And then I'm thinking to myself, I'll knock over 160 k's in, you know, before dinner time I'll go home, I'll have a bath, I'll have my dinner, I'll come back tomorrow, pick up my trophy, I've qualified, everything's good, you know, this is, this, this is too easy. After five hours of running around this track, running around this track, I came to the outside lane of the track, and I I waved to my crew, to and in particular to my eldest brother Bernie. I called him. Over. He came out to the outside lane of the track, because that's where you you were allowed to take in food and you, food and drinks. And he said, "What's the matter?" I said, "Mate, I don't know." I said, "I'm getting really dizzy," and I I, I said, "I I feel faint. I don't know what's going on." And he said, "Well, what do you think it is?" I I said, "I don't know," and he, I said, "But I was watching the other runners, and they were." They were taking in some food and drink. Maybe I should have something to drink. Five <laughs> hours into the run. <laughs> he said, and he knew less about the night. He said, so what do you want? I said, oh, I don't know. Grab me a hamburger and a can of Coke. <laughs> so he did. He went racing across the road. Westfield was across the road from uh, Henley Oval at Botany. Went across there, grabbed me this great big hamburger while I'm, while I'm sort of still circling around the track, the outside lane of the track. And it had everything it had pineapple, bacon, <laughs> eggs, onions, beetroot, lettuce, every, everything on it. It was a triple decker. He come back with that, and the worst thing about it was he had it under his arm. So he's, he's carrying under his arm. He's got the can of Coke there, and he bought something for him some chips for himself like, at the same time. Come out to the outside lane of the track. I made my way to there. I took the, the hamburger. I was so hungry. I woofed it down. I grabbed the can of Coke, I woofed that down and then all of a sudden my eyes opened up like headlights on a car and I, and I felt fantastic and I took <laughs> off and I laughed everybody and then I took off again, I lapped them all again and I thought, thought I'm back, that's all I needed was that hamburger and a can of Coke. You, 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 all of you know when you run, somebody gives you an injection of Coca-Cola all of a sudden, you feel fantastic for about at least 10 minutes anyway <laughs> uh, and that's about all usually. But uh, So you feel good, you know, I got that sugar back into my body and I felt great and then I come around for the third lap and everything that went down started to come back up again. I fell onto all fours on the track with this beautiful synthetic oval, I was vomiting all over the track, I was as sick as a dog. That was when I realised there's more to this running business than just running. (laughs) I'm
1: amazed. I thought when I asked you about being inspired by Cliff Young, you were going to tell me I'd run a handful of marathons at that stage. Running was really part of my life and I was taking it to the
0: next level. You started with the idea of running ultra marathons. Yeah, well, we all got start somewhere. And because I was naive and I didn't know anything, an ultra marathon was just another running race. So, you know, why muck around with a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon, or a marathon when you can go straight to the top shelf? So I did. And the funny thing was later on in life, after a few years of doing these things, I looked back and I thought, Maybe I should have gone through that progression of, uh, a ten, you know, getting a decent 10K time first and then a decent half marathon time. But, you know, it was too late by then. So, but you didn't? It
1: was what so it was. So you started that way. When did it click for you? When did you feel as though you were someone who knew about ultramarathon running?
0: Well, I was lucky because I was so naive. I didn't have any preconceived ideas of myself. And that was a great advantage and always has been all the way through my life and everything I've done. And so I asked the question. So people like Giannis Chris, Tony Rafferty, uh, Ron Grant, uh, um, later on Steve uh, Steve Monteghetti, Rob DeGostela, all these guys that we, we have up on the pedestal, you know, I would I would contact them and say, look, um, what do you eat? What do you drink? What shoes are you wearing? What are you doing like this? And I, often I'd be in the same races as these guys, but I had no problems asking them the questions, whereas a lot of the other people saw them as competition and they didn't there was always this barrier, so it was very much a closed shop about training and exercise and nutrition, and 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 so I, I, I genuinely listened and I learned and I put it into practice, and so I learnt and I learnt and I learned. and then, you know, everybody's different, and that's the other thing too is uh, just because a training program works for one person doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for somebody else. It's a great base. But you need to find your own niche and same with your food and your nutrition we all know the right things to eat the right things to drink and how we should go about it but then you need to tailor that to suit yourself and, and you know this is one of the things that i do if i'm doing a short distance event of course like everybody else i'll just take in my carbohydrate drinks and my waters and and, and maybe my isotonic drinks which are your power aids your gatorades your old days your staminates all of all of those sorts of things your um uh carbohydrate drinks the um, you know the, they're more of the food replacement side of things. But if I'm doing an ultra, I'm on solids and I take in solids because I figure most of my life I'm just eating normal food all the time. So when I come to a race situation, if I all of a sudden want to rely on goose for a whole 24 hour period or even multi-day events, my system's not going to be able to handle it and I'm just going to end up a mess. So you need to do whatever you're going to do in the race, you need to do it in training as well, and you need to do it as part of your life. So just with all of that, you know, I take the stairs rather than the elevator off and more often than not. You know, uh, it's quite a hassle and quite debilitating when you're carrying a lot of stuff, but I still do that. Uh, You know, I'll take the, the stairs rather than go on the travel later at the airports and things like that, and I make it part of my life, and the same with the food and nutrition side of things.
1: We'll, we'll talk about the food sure. nutrition because I know there's some people here who are really interested in that side of things, some endurance athletes themselves. But to get to that, I, I'd like to know where the idea of competing in these or creating your own, really, epic mm. runs came from. You were inspired by the Westfield Sydney to Melbourne, a, a new race, but, but an established one. Yeah. You're famous now, though, for creating your own runs. Yeah, where did this true. idea of, of doing these epic you know, south to north of, of India or pole to pole? Where did that come from? Well,
0: there was there was this big void. Uh, only now, um, you know, have these things started to come into vogue and we've got, you know, uh, North Face 100, we've got 100K races on all over the place, Western States, we've got a Western States 100 milers in, in America, uh, so through California and all along that west coast of America, and, and they're very popular. But there was a time when there was just hardly anything on, Uh, And so a lot of the international runners were coming to Australia. They were doing the Sydney to Melbourne race. They were doing the Colalax six-day race. Uh, And then aside from that, uh, there was nothing much else happening, certainly nothing as far as um, uh, prize purses were concerned. There was the odd uh, Sri Shemoy 1,000-mile race in Central Park, New York, and then they started that up over here as well, which incidentally takes about 14 days to do, 1,000 miles, 1,600 k's, or used to in the old days. Uh, um, but aside from that, there wasn't the event. So that was when I, I did three Sydney to Melbourne races. I, w- I became the youngest person at the age of 18 back in those days to finish what was still considered the toughest race on earth. I bettered my position each time and then moved down to seventh place. And then in 1991, I made a decision rather than do the Sydney, Sydney-Melbourne race I decided to go across to America and do the Trans-American Foot Race, which was a race that started in California and finished in New York, Huntington Beach, California, and finished in Central Park, New York. So 4,719 kilometres across America. And 60 minutes flew over and they covered that story. It was the first bit of exposure that I got as far as the running business was concerned. And then I got, <coughs> I got approached by Manchester Unity, uh a, a health or a health fund organization at the time and a great organization that saw what i did and they wanted to back me to do some other events and and from there they said you know well i said well there's not that many other events on so they said we'll create some events so that's how it all started you came second the first time you ran yeah. the Trans america
1: run and the second time you ran it two years later you you came fourth fourth yeah but you ran for f- how long with Stress fractures in your foot.
0: Yeah, well, he he lays the problem because it's like playing a game of golf. You know, you have a you have a great run one time, and then you think, oh, I've got the I've got it all sorted out. And and it's not. You know, you have to train specifically for every single event. You have to be on your game for every single event because if we just naturally got better by doing event after event after event, then we would continuously be on this road of progression. We sort of are, but often we digress. Uh, um, so what happened with me was I finished second. I had no support, no sponsorship, hardly anything to eat. And I'll give you an example of what that means. That means that when I'm running through places like Barstow and uh, through the center of America through uh, on my way on into Las Vegas and you're out in the middle of the desert there, while all of the other um, uh, competitors have got their support crew on the side of the road with a, a platter with their food on them, they got chopped up nuts, they got chopped up apricots, they got uh, uh, bottles of water and, and drinks on there with the beads of water dripping down the outside because it's yeah. been cooled. And very inviting. And that I'm running past and the race organisers have put out my power bar and my bottle of Gatorade and my bottle of water in the morning when they did, when they set up the race for the day, the 80Ks for the day. And so now I'm 30, 40Ks into the day's run and when they they don't even have to bend over to get theirs because it's it's handed to them like that or it's on a table on the, side of the right mine's on the ground on the side there if it's still there when I come past if it hasn't been picked up by a coyote and then I come past the the it's it's like forty five nearly forty eight degrees out there in the desert as you're running through and the power bar is soft liquidy terrible they're, those things aren't great when they're in good shape and then. And then there's all these green ants, the top is blown off the top of my Gatorade and there's all these green ants made their way into my bottle of Gatorade. So I grab the bottle of Gatorade as I'm racing past and I take the top off, I swig back a bit or, you know, sometimes the top's not even on, I'm swinging back a bit and all of a sudden I start coughing there's this thing tickling the back of my throat. And I look in the bottle and there's all these green ants that have made their way into there and they're, they're trying to survive in there, and I've just swallowed half of them. So, you know, that's what it was like. So so
1: you came second in that race. Yeah. Help us understand, when you're racing across America, there's enormous distances over how, how many days did you say?
0: So it's 64, 64. days, 80K a day every single day. Uh, there are no days off. And we were quite competitive. There was one guy, uh, Dujon Mirable, Uh, He would fake uh, an aid station uh, down towards the last 10 miles, so 16 Ks. Uh, And by that, I mean he would run up, go to get his drink like this. And we were running. There was myself, Ray Bell, uh, and Dujon in front of us. And the three of us would be running in this pack. We left the rest of the pack behind. And we're just watching each other's heels. And you all know what it's like. I'm mesmerized by this guy's heels in front of me. He's doing all the hard work. So long as I can concentrate on his heels, I can hang on to the pace, everything's good. And then all of a sudden, he'll go to go to a drink station, which means that must be our drink station at the end of three miles. Uh, we all lean to the side to go across there. I'm looking for my drink bottle. I just go to grab it. He fakes it and takes off. He, d- he misses that drink stop. Takes off, puts a gap between us. In a split second, you've got to make a decision. Do I go with him and go without the drink or... Do I take the drink and try and pull him back? And I know if he makes that gap on us, it's going to be hard to pull out. So then it's a flat-out race. 16K an hour for the last 10 miles – sorry, for the last 16Ks for the last hour. And it was a sprint. And there was only seconds that separated us almost every single day all the way through to the end of that race. Uh, um, It was was an amazing thing. But that was – we, we had 30 hours between the three of us and the rest of the field from all over the world.
1: That was where my question was going. Does it come down, uh, after 64 days, does it come down to the last day? How close was it between first
0: and second? Oh, uh, uh, very close, um, less than an hour because they're just a cumulative time. So everybody would start at 5 a.m. the same time. Uh, we would all finish at the same spot, and then the town would put on a function for us that time. Often they'd close down the main street. They'd put a great big uh, table up the centre of the street. They had dinner on for us, and they had you know the local mayor would would um, say his piece and all the rest of it. They did an award ceremony like the Tour de France sort of scenario, and, and then and then we'd retire, we'd rest, and then five a.m. the next morning the mayor would be there, fire the gun, and we'd take off and head towards the next town. They were great events, they were tremendous events, but like you were saying, I finished second in that race the first time I did in 93, and then I was addicted to it. I thought I didn't have any support crew. If I get support, I can win this race. So I came back and I trained like a man possessed, uh, and I got uh, Manchester Unity on board as a sponsor, and I thought everything's gonna be good now. I went across there again to do the event in 95, and I took off, and for the first 20 days, I led the race. I was way ahead of the rest of the field. We came into a place called of Colorado, and I noticed this lump on my leg. By the time I, I went to bed, I woke up the next morning, and it was a stress fracture. And the stress fracture had gone from the size of a golf ball to the next morning being the size of a football, started at my ankle and finished in my knee. It was just completely blown up, uh, and, and um, I started trying to run with it, and I took off, you know, same as I'd been doing for the last 22 days, hit the lead, but this time the lead only lasted for about 300 metres and then the rest of the field came, overtook me and that was the loneliest day of my life. 80 k's started off the day like that and I had to get through the day and I I, I got through the day, just made it inside the 12-hour cutoff for the 80 k's because there was cutoffs with this and if you didn't finish, you're out of the event, regardless of whether you're in the lead or not. Uh, and um, just made it inside by five minutes, uh, had the race doctors look at it, every, everything, they wanted to pull me out of the race, we iced it up, we did all, you know, all the right things to it uh, uh, and it came down to the fact that they wanted to pull me out of the race and I said, well, I made the cutoff, you can't take me out of the race unless I don't make the cutoff, so at least let me start tomorrow. Uh, and so I started that the next day and then I started the next day, the next day, the next day and after 10 days it went numb. And I found I was actually able to pick it up and throw it down reasonably well after that. And I started winning stages again. So I went from (laughs) last place in the field to back into fourth place by the time we got to Central Park, New York. So I still had, um, you know, still had another, you know, more than a couple of hundred, uh, more than 2,000 Ks, 2,500 Ks to go after having that injury. I'm not suggesting anybody should do this, but I was, in, I was on the other side of the world. I never thought I'd ever get back there again. I thought this would be the last run I ever do. I've got to try and at least finish, or at least if I collapse and I can't go any further, at least I know that's the best I've given. And that's always been my mindset. My mindset's always been, I just need to know that I've given my best. I don't need to win the race. I don't need to set a world record. I don't need to do anything spectacular. I just need to know that that's the best I can be on the day. And so I did that day after day. And like I said, you know, it went numb and then I started winning positions again and I pulled my way back through. I finished in fourth place around in Central Park, New York. I finished in fourth place after going from first place to last place after 22 days. And, and then I spent the next, like, long time in last place. And then I started peeling my way back up through the field. Uh, and I finished in fourth place overall. I crossed the finish line, and this Australian reporter, first thing he did was stick a microphone in my face and said, Pat, how do you feel? You didn't win. Oh. You didn't win. <laughs> Name, who was the reporter? Anyway, he's still with Channel 9, I'll just say that. But, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but it was interesting because I speak at a lot of schools, and that was. Probably the best learning experience of my life. I spent a lot of time on my own. It was very tough. And I, I and I realized in that event what winning's all about. And I say this to the kids in the schools when I speak to them because anyone can run well on a good day. And when everything's in your favor, the wind's at your back and you're feeling great, we all do well. But a champion will do well regardless, and they'll pull a rabbit out of a hat. That's why the Kieran Perkins swim in the Olympics that time, you right. know, uh, um, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew, um, uh, Andrew, uh, oh, um, in the Commonwealth Games, won a gold medal. Every the guys fell down, they tripped over, and Bradbury. Bradbury. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was in ice skating. But Andrew, um, oh, I think of his name, in the running, did the same thing, and Stephen Bradbury as well. You know, they put themselves in the right position to be able to take advantage of the situation as it unfolded. And you never know, you know, you feel like crap and we all feel like this, even if it's a city surf, we're going to feel like crap in that thing at one point or another because you run to suit the event. If it's a shorter event, you run harder and faster. So you feel terrible. But who's to say that? And your mind's telling you, just quit or stop or walk or just take it easy now. And you, you're battling with your mind. This is why I'm glad that we're going to go on the psychology side of things because it's not about just your physical being. It's about the strength of mind and character as well. And so if you can push through that, I mean, who's to say the guy beside you or the girl beside you is not hearing the same voices in their head and about to pull out as well? So if you just hang in there, you never know what the opportunities will provide. And that's why I've been able to succeed in this, in this sport, Because I've never given up and I've finished every single thing I've ever started. And like Cliff Young told me in the old old days, and I've never forgotten, he said, Pat, in order to win a race, you have to finish a race. And I've never forgotten that. seems like a no-brainer. But so many people, they've got all these reputations. They look great. They feel great. Everything's good. They've trained so well. They're ready to set the world on fire. If something goes wrong during the course of the run, it's not going their way. So easy to pull out and quit. But um, you never know. You never know if you just hang there. You never know something might come good. Those people in front of you might something might happen. They might be feeling just as bad, and and you'll and you'll come through. And even if you don't, you've you beat that. You beat that that voice in your head. You've pushed through another barrier. And I always say I am now the sum total of every race I have ever done before in my life. Because come. That point in the race, and it always happens when you feel like crap and you feel like you can't go on or you don't want to go on or even in life in general, you reflect on the things that happened before and you know you've been there before and you know you got through it and you know you can get through it again.
1: Give us an insight into how you approach it mentally and physically. How do you prepare yourself when you're staring down the barrel of 20,000 kilometers from pole to pole? Ten ten months you spent that race. 191 days around Australia, 64 days across America. When you're coming towards that big circle on your calendar, what are you thinking? And tell us also, how do you prepare for that? We've all run half marathons or marathons. We know how to get there, but how do you do two a
0: day well, for months on end? Well, let me, let me just firstly... I, I've written a book here, it's got the pole to pole book. Well, actually, it was, it was done together, myself writing and then a, another writer tied in it up a bit, fixing the spelling mistakes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, but I will sit down, I'll write the true story about that run one day. Uh, Is that's not uh, the true story? Well, it's the true, it's the true story, but there was a lot of stuff beyond it. So I was, in, I was in a bad place when I went off to do that run and I basically thought I was going off to die. And I, I was like trying. I was going to climb a mountain, and I thought to myself, "Well, you know, whatever happens here will happen, uh, and I'm, I'm ready for it." What you did know? you take it on? Well, well, well you have. To, that's that's too big a story for tonight. But that, but that one of these days, I'll explain all of that properly. There was a lot of things happened there around that point in time. But it was that it was all of that. It's amazing how you can draw on the negatives of your life. And if you do that, um it's amazing how powerful you can be. Like I've always said, I've always said, you know, you see on the back it's a lot of guys have got the um flashy youth on the back, no fear. You know, they got off their surfboard when they bought it. But the bottom line of that sticker is if you can live your life without fear, you can do amazing things with this life. You can do incredible things. You're not not, not, you don't have fear of rejection, you don't have fear of failure, you don't have fear of whatever's going to happen. It's amazing what the human body is capable of doing. And, and so with that in mind, I've been able to achieve, you know, I've been able to achieve a lot of things I reflect on now and I don't even know how the hell I did them myself. But um, just to really, I suppose to get back to what your real question was there, was, um, you know, I've always said, Training is the hardest thing in the world because there is no cheer squad when you're training. It's often pitch black and freezing cold in the morning and you're out there and it's 5 a.m. and the dogs are barking at you or, 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 or chasing you. you run around. You're thinking, why the hell am I doing this? The rest of the world's in a nice warm bed, you know, and they're living normal lives and I'm out here and I'm doing this. And you do that day after day after day. But the thing is when you get to the event, if you have done that, When you get to the event, then you remind yourself you've already put in so much to be at that starters line that you owe it to yourself to finish, you owe it to yourself to do the best you can possibly do. And um, if you've trained, then that's the feeling you have. If you haven't trained hard enough, then you get to the starters line and you're worried about the race. But if you've trained hard enough, you just know that, regardless of how long that race is, even if it's the pole-to-pole and it's 20,000 kilometres, it is going to finish. And when it finishes, that's it, it's done. Whereas training never finishes. So, you know, I finish the pole-to-pole where I find myself back on the same streets again, running against the same dog again, chasing me again, (laughs) same thing, you know. And and that's the repetitiveness of training. But if you can overcome that, you can overcome anything.
1: What does your regime look like in the lead-up to something like the pole-to-pole?
0: Uh, well, um, uh, I will do – at the moment, I'm living over at Maroubra so a, a standard day for me is I'll do 20Ks on the beach in the morning from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. So, oh, soft or hard? Uh, soft sand. No, Soft, soft sand, sand. Yeah, uh-huh. soft sand. It's, it's the benefit. It's not about showing off. It's pitch black. Nobody can see you anyway. So no one cares what my style is like or how fast I run. It's just a hard slog. It's like doing hill work. You look like crap. Uh, but you you know that you're getting the benefit out of it. If you want to look glamorous, then you you know save that for the for race day and you've got all the right gear and you're looking great and all the rest of it. But training is just a hard slog, so you've got to do those hard yards. So soft sand, 20k's on the beach in the morning, uh, and then I'll you know I'll have a shower, get organised, and I'll head off to work. Do whatever I do. Uh, and then uh, for that day, and then I'll have another training session in the afternoon, and that might be they'll be maybe a gym session. I, I'll, I'll often include a, a, a Pilates class. I do Pilates. I love I love the idea of doing yoga, but I'm just not flexible enough for yoga. I, all of these years of being so rigid uh, It's protected me from a lot of major injuries. That rigidity, uh, but it's also prevented me from. Um, uh, because I because I'm not overextending, so it's it's held back a bit of speed for me as well. You got to get a compromise. I think this is a difficult thing for all of us to come to terms with. If you're rigid, then there's less chance of overtear, overstretch uh, injuries. But you you're compromising your speed as a result of that, and your fluidity uh, as a result of them. Somewhere is the right amount of fluidity. Uh, but without the overstretching that you'll see a lot of 100, uh, 100 meter runners doing, or five hundred meter runners, they're all set for an event. They'll go out there, they're trained, they haven't warmed up enough, or something will go, and they're they're, they're torn. Uh, the origin of one of the, uh, the ligament or a, you know or a tendon, that's it, the whole thing blown. So I find that that rigidity has allowed me to do what I do over long distance over a long period of time, but it means that every single step is almost exactly the same. And this is why I do a lot of hill work, I do a lot of stair work, and I do a lot of beach soft sand running because I'm forced to alter my stride and strengthen up. And, and because of the, the movement, you hit the sand, a uh, soft sand, and your ankles going like this all the time. So whilst that's difficult and and, and at the time, what it is doing is strengthening the tendons on all either side of your ankle at the same time. It's doing the same thing in your knees and your hips at the same time. So That's why I find those sorts of things uh, very, very, very beneficial. So I'll do that. You know, I'll do some, I'll do some sprint works and lead up to a, an event as well. I've got some running with Run Lab uh, tomorrow morning. So I'll do we'll do one k sprints um, uh, with a three minute recovery uh, in between. So one k sprint. Uh, the old days I would do 1k in around about three minutes and 15 seconds uh, uh, these days you know I'll take uh, I'll take four, four minutes and I'll do I'll do 1k sprints uh, and I'll have a recovery in between I'll do another one another one and uh, if it's a really major event I'll do 21k sprints uh, so it's a big session that's an evening session that's a, a long night session
1: one of the things that amazed me about you is that at the end of these long days, and we, we know that Pat, when he does his back-to-back days, they're two marathons in a day, back-to-back. He'll finish the day at about 14 or 15K per hour pace. So that's, that's under a three-hour marathon at the end of his double marathon for the day. Incredible, mate. When do you know in the lead-up to an event
0: that you're physically ready? What are the signs in you mm. that you know to look for? Uh, you feel, you, you know, you look in the mirror and you like what you see. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. If we all know when we're being lazy, we all know when we've eaten too much chocolate. We all know or too much ice cream or what. Yeah, you, know, you, you don't feel good about yourself. You enjoyed it when you were having it, but it, you know, but you, you don't feel so great about yourself afterwards, it's like having a McDonald's hamburger. You know, so it, it, it's like that. You know, you look in yourself and you feel you feel strong. You feel. Like you want to jump out of your skin, and this is this is the kick I get uh, out of out of running because uh, when I'm training well and I'm doing well, yeah, it's hard work. But uh, when I'm away from the training uh, about an hour later on, I look at my I feel strong again. So my recovery time is really minimal, and I'm and I'm and I'm feeling great. Uh, when you go to a training session, you have a hard workout. You have to have hard workouts to train. That's the purpose of it. But if you feel like crap for the rest of the day afterwards, then you need to look seriously look at your training sessions and, and see what you're doing, maybe not doing right. Uh, because you, you should be, as time's progress over a four or six week period in particular, and definitely over a 12 week period, you should be feeling fantastic uh, um, an hour after you've had a training session instead of lethargic and worn out. You know, I always feel tired at 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I feel like I need a nana nap, you know, for a, or a micro sleep for about, you know, 10 minutes or something, and then I'm okay again. But uh, that's because of the early starts. But, you know, I, I feel good in the nights and I feel great most of the way through the day. So what about the nutrition
1: during these runs? The double marathon days, back-to-back days for hundreds of days in a row, it sounds crazy to even say it what do you know about nutrition that you didn't know that first run you went when your brother gave you a hamburger? <laughs>
0: can of cake. well well can of cakes a classic example you know it's so high in sugar that you uh, we all know this now but we didn't used to know in the old days you get this spike and of course you know you you, you feel fabulous for you know for a good half an hour but then you feel terrible afterwards. so but, but you can use that to your advantage because in the in the uh, trans-american race you um, when we would come down to say the last 10 miles or something like that we would have like coca-cola would so because we knew like it was going to use so use yeah use it to your advantage but you know it's not going to last so you can you even know over time how you're going to stretch it out but look um the basics isotonic drinks i think the greatest isotonic drink on the face of the planet is the most natural one is a coconut water I swear by coconut water, I uh, first started using it when I was doing the run in Vietnam, I'd run the length of Vietnam and uh, I first started using it over there and I felt really good, I felt really good and and I felt hydrated and and then I started using it a lot, I'm not sponsored by them so it's not an ad or anything but I just, I, I, I swear by it, I think it's fantastic so whenever I, I can get some anywhere in the world, I'll drink that rather than anything else. Um, So I think that's terrific. Uh, uh, You know, as you know, everybody's into the protein bars for training, and and we need protein in our diet. We we absolutely do. But um, it's like the old days. We used to have these carbo-loading nights where you have a whole lot of pasta. People would eat ridiculous amounts of this stuff that they would never eat in a normal life, and then they're wondering why they're not getting the benefit of it. Yeah, you've got so much carbohydrate there. The um, thing about carbohydrates, for starters, is it retains the fluid. So it has a dual effect. One, it's a slow re- release energy. Uh, so your body can store the carbohydrates and, you, and it will release it. So perfect for long-distance events. So, but but um, the other great benefit of carbohydrates is it's, it retains the fluid in your body. And this is why a lot of people in normal life they don't like it. They don't like taking in too many carbs because they they look fat, they feel fat, you know, pretty quickly. Um, but it's it's retaining that fluid. But if you're exercising, if you're if you're training, uh, you absolutely need that, and and you don't you know you don't get the bloated effect and all the rest of it. But you've got to be sensible about it. You know, you have a bowl of it. You don't have ten bowls of it because uh, you know. It's, more is not necessarily better is what i'm really trying to say so you know you think about things like that the best race i ever did that was a hundred kilometer world championships i went through the marathon time in 220 two hours 20 minutes and it was in a hundred kilometer race it was the world championships it was up in Hokkaido in japan i'd spent one month in japan over there before the start of the races i had a great japanese sponsor at the time and I stayed at a traditional Japanese uh, hotel, and all we had was traditional Japanese food. So it's like rice balls, uh, um, fresh, uh, fresh um, uh, uh, fish, uh, tuna, salmon. Uh, um, uh, the food, the food was amazing, but everything was f- incredibly fresh and pristine, and not cooked. Uh, and it was, I can only put it down to the food. It was the best I've ever run in my whole life.
1: Well, I'm sure there will be some specific questions about nutrition later. And by the way, I should have said at the start, I'll, I'll take up Pat's time for about 45, and then we'll throw it to questions to you guys. So think of your specific questions that you might have about that. But I want to go back to the running, and we talked about you starting your career with the Sydney to Melbourne and the Trans America. But at the end, the, the latter part has very much been these these solo runs that you've created out of nothing was there a change in
0: mindset that
1: brought you to that place where you were creating these new paths for yourself
0: yeah i suppose for me it's about you you know like I, i'm not running i'm running for me and i'm running because i feel free when i run and, and as i was saying to you earlier on you know to I just finished doing the run in India. I ran the length of India from uh, Kenya, Kamari, right down the pointy bit down the bottom where the three seas meet. So you've got you've got the Arabian Sea, you've got the Indian Ocean, and you've got the um, uh, uh, and you've got the t- uh, uh, Tamil uh, the Tamil Sea. Uh, and at that point, there was where I started. Then I headed up the west coast and right up to the top. I completed that journey over four thousand kilometres and finished in Kashmir. But the most amazing thing about that was I was sitting in my kitchen uh, at Maroubra and I've got these maps out and I not I know you can do it much more efficiently on a computer with Google Maps and all the rest of it, but I love paper maps because I can roll them up and take them with me anywhere and and I just love looking at these things. And I've got, a, I've got a globe at home that spins around. I can see all the different countries in the world and I've got lots and lots of maps. So I'm sitting there in my kitchen and I've got this map and I'm – trying to read names like Canyon Kamari, which I didn't even know how to pronounce, or I definitely didn't know how to spell it. And I'm looking at this place I've never seen before, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna start this race there. I'm gonna start this run there. And then I'm, I'm working out 80 k's from there up to the next spot, okay, that's where I'll finish for the day, and it's this other place, and then I'll go through this other place, and then I'll go through Kerala, and then I'll, I'll go through this next day, and then the next day. And, and I'm working out this whole thing. And then to actually get there, to be able to turn a concept from something you had in your mind of what you wanted to do. Imagine you want to climb a mountain or you want to compete in Kona, you want to do the triathlon in, in Kona, or you want, to, you want to do some event. And you read enough about it, you look at it enough, you see enough <coughs> photos about it, you trace enough maps about it that it goes from a dream to reality. And there I was on the ground and I was in India at the start of this event and there was literally thousands of people there lined up, 5 a.m. in the morning, got up to see me start on Australia Day to start this event. I get a call from the governor general in Australia on the phone. I'm just thinking, this is, this is amazing. And it all started in my kitchen just with a map and just thinking, I wonder if I could run India. And I didn't know anything about, it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't drive the whole course before I did, so I went from the sea, and you know, I finished in Kashmir, up near and not far from uh, Gulmarg, and where they have the highest uh, gondola in the world, uh, three and a half thousand meters. It goes up to, it takes you up to the top of this mountain. Beautiful <coughs> snow-capped mountains, magnificent lakes up there. This scenery that you would never imagine. And this is the same kid that left school at the age of fourteen. A Granville, stood on the side of the road. And here I am in India and it was the same when I was in Vietnam, the same when I was in the South Pole and the North Pole and the Darien jungle and all of these places and Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Palestine and all of these places that i had been before. And this is where my sport had taken me to. So for me, it's beyond just I'm going to have a race with somebody and this is my PB, and this is my time. For me, it's a whole opening of a whole world out there and that's what I get out of it. So if there's not a race on, well then I'll do a I'll do I'll do an event like this. But having said that, watch this space, because I do like to race as well, uh, and. But it's hard to find other people <laughs> what, that want want to do want to race the whole country or something. <laughs> I found one. I found one. This guy from America. You may have heard of him. His name's Dean Carnezi. He's written lots of books. I'm sure you've heard about him. Is he the 50 marathons in 50 yeah, days yeah, yeah, Oh Yeah, that's enough. You've done, done that uh, 20 well, times in a row. Over, he's done a whole lot of other stuff as well. He's he's overdoing the Silk Road at this point in time, right? So he's uh, he and I have been talking a lot about doing an event and. Yeah, it's not public, we'll probably go public now anyway, but but um, yeah, we're working towards having a race. So Australia versus America, the length of Cuba. Great idea. Yeah. And when's that going to happen? And what better place to have it? Well, maybe a lot sooner than most people think. If I have my way, I'll start on 26th of January next year. Fantastic. Well, he's allowed yeah. to go to so Cuba it's 1, now. 1,400 k's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Cuba, what an incredible exotic location. And, and to be able to set up an event and go there and do it as a race. And then we'll pick a charity because I always try and pick a charity. Uh, that's the other thing. If, I, if I'm running for somebody else other than myself, if I'm running for gold medals or a prize purse for myself, then when you feel like crap or you've got injuries, it's so easy to quit. But if there's somebody relying on you because you're actually going to save their life or change their life, then when you're on the ground and you've got some aches and pains, you realise you can deal with it. So it's that that helps me to pick myself up and to push on. So the last run, as was quite um, well mentioned earlier on, was for girls' education in India, the Nani Kali Foundation. Uh, and um, the next run that I'll do will probably be for the seeds program in Uganda where they give microloans of seeds to the women there uh, and they plant crops, they grow a crop, they, and then they... Uh, They harvest the seeds, they pay back the seeds, and they've got a whole crop to be able to support their kids and send them to school and all the rest of it. And, I mean, these are things, you know, we're living in Australia. We're thinking about school fees, uh, sending our kids to private schools or this or that. And you don't get connected like that, you know. And for me to be able to do that through running is the most amazing thing in the world. So, yeah, I do like to race uh, when I can. Uh, there's no way in the world I'm go- ever going to win a city to surf or a half marathon or a marathon. Uh, I love, you know, I like to go in them, but I'll always go in them and I'll do them with uh, for a charity. And my job is just to train people that are doing it for the charity and to help them along and help them finish because I know that I can't. I well, I'm not training specifically to win one of those events.
1: Vietnam up and down. India, up and down, mm-hmm. America across, Australia around, New Zealand up and down. Yeah. Have you got a favourite? Is there anything that you look back on and think, yeah, that's the one?
0: Well, Vietnam was uh, was an amazing event. So was India because the people are... I, I let me give you an idea. When I was in India, you'll see a film. There's a film coming out at the end of the year. You'll see the film about the whole thing. Uh, and <laughs> You know, people would greet you on the side of the road, and they'd stop you. You know, and and if you didn't want to stop, like, I, and a lot of times I didn't want to stop, as I was in a momentum, I wanted to keep going. I knew I had the eighty k to do for the day, and I wanted to get it done. And they would stand in front of you, and they physically grab you and stop you. And then they they go, "I'm the mayor of the town," or you know, the, the equivalent, the district collector. And then they and they throw a garland of flowers over your head. Well, that was just. <laughs> That was bizarre, and then somebody else would throw another garland over, and another garland somebody would bless you, and somebody else would, would touch the, your feet and then bless themselves after they've touched your, your, your feet. And, and it's just overwhelming. And there's so many shots where you can't even see my head, there's so many flowers up over the top, row after row after row. They just kept pouring on. I'm just trying to get my run done, uh, uh, and um. It was like that. So, you know, those are incredibly memorable experiences. Uh, Going through the Darren jungle, I had 19 armed soldiers go with me through the Darren jungle because it was, at the time, the most dangerous place on earth.
1: That was part of your pole-to-pole.
0: That was part of the pole-to-pole, and they wanted me to fly over. The Panamanian government was going to pay for a chopper for me to fly over the Darren jungle and into Colombia uh, rather rather than me go through there, and I insisted on it, and then... Um, I was lucky I had a lot of momentum by that stage and a lot of political will behind me by that stage so they relented and the next thing I know a truckload of, of soldiers showed up and they ended up coming through the Darien with me so it took me five days to get through the Darien and I'm through there and on out into Colombia. but well to see sites like that very few people on earth will ever get the chance to see anything like that uh, and everything that was in there as well was absolutely amazing. But. Um, I don't know, just so many things. Uh, to be the North Pole is like nothing on Earth. It's an ice cube that floats on the ocean. It's not like the South Pole. South Pole's ice over the top of land, and there's penguins down there and a lot of friendly things like that, little seals. Up north is polar bears that everything wants to eat you. If, you, if you're in the water, the orcas want to eat you. If you're in the a polar bear, wants to eat you. The, the seals up there, sea lions, and the bearded sea lions, they've got big teeth. They want to eat you. And if they don't get you, then your cameraman will eat you if, if you slow down because you know, if we're running low on food, it's like a matter of survival, you know. So that, the North Pole... But having said that, the North Pole, like, to be there. To be dropped off by a Russian helicopter and then just to think, my God, I really got to do it now. I really got to do it. Here I am. I really got... This is real. You know, and it was almost like I was having fun with everybody until that moment, and then it hit me <laughs> what I've really got to do. And you can see the curvature of the Earth at the top of the world. There, it's hard to believe, but there's no buildings. Uh, um, there's no buildings in your way. There's nothing in your way. And what often happens because of the ice there, you get this precipitation above the ice, and you get a cloud of ice above a cloud. Sorry, a cloud above you. And then there's a rim of blue that wraps around the world, right around the world like this. And, and, and so it perfectly outlines the curvature of, of the, the ice that you're on and the curvature of the globe and the curvature of the cloud. It's just the most amazing place in the world on, on a good day. And on a bad day, it's the most horrendous place on earth. And the ice cracks before your eyes and you've got to put a dry suit on, get into the water, Uh, two ice axes, try and make your way through it all across to the other side and get out of there. And so I'm only telling you this because you all think the running's hard. But (laughs) but this is why the running's easier for me because when you do some of this other stuff just to get the chance to run, then uh, you start to appreciate running and you don't complain about it so much.
1: And that was part one of my conversation with Pat Farmer. He's an extraordinary character, isn't he? It really is hard to believe that he, so humble, modest, talkative and honest, so apparently normal, could have done so many things that for most of us are simply unimaginable. And how about that announcement right here on the Team Guru podcast? He gave us the scoop that he has planned to run very soon. Australia Day 2017, if he gets his way, Pat will run the length of Cuba against the American Dean Karnassi, the man famous for running 50 marathons in 50 days. Now, I don't want to get all patriotic here, but I think Pat's got you covered, Dean. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my episode with Pat on the podcast page for this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams, with an S, dot Guru forward slash podcast. And if you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can always email me directly, david at teams.guru. I'll be back next week for part two of my conversation with Pat Farmer. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.